Hello, Simon. Hello, Bruce. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Factorally. How are you all? Oh, yes, we can't. Well, no, they can hear us. Yeah, but, but we can't we hear them. Can't hear. This is not the kind of thing where they have a talkback button where they can actually go. <laughs> yeah, thanks, guys. We're fine. Yes. No, we're not at work. We don't have. We don't have a man on the other side of the screen asking us to do another take. It's just us. Yes. Can you? Can you just? Can you just emphasize orally a bit more? <laughs> yes. Emphasize the fact rather than the orally. And is it orally or orally? Oh well, this is an ongoing debate, isn't it? <laughs> I'm so glad that we have the sort of listenership who will recognise the difference between orally and orally exactly. without having to explain that. Yes. Well done, everyone. Well <laughs> Thank done. Thank you very much. <laughs> so we, we often tackle the, the small subjects and we often tackle the big subjects. Yeah. I think we thought this was going to be a small subject. Yes. And it turned out to be a big one. I thought this was going to be sort of a size five uh, it's turned out to be a size 13 and a half. <laughs> There's a lot of material here. It lasts and lasts and lasts. <laughs> so what are we talking about on this week's episode, Bruce? Shoes. Right, okay. So um, the etymology of the word shoe. Um, the, the English word shoe comes from the German word shoe, which comes from the Dutch word shoe, which comes from the old English word shoe, which means <laughs> a shoe. <laughs> One of the dullest etymologies ever. Do you know what the German for glove is? No. Handschuhe. Handschuhe. A shoe on your hand. Yes. Brilliant. Love that. <laughs> Shall we go back a bit in time? Go on then. We've known that people have worn shoes for about 6,000 years. That's quite a while. Uh, they probably have worn them before that as well, but we're certain. Um, we, found, we found a pair of flip-flops, basically. <laughs> You well, personally went which, and found which, a pair of flip-flops. <laughs> which, I, which I will now call thong sandals, because that's technically what they are. Is that right? Yes. And they were sort of made from all sorts of things, made from uh, leaves, uh, animal skins, right. bark, just lots and lots and lots of different things that you could okay. make footwear out of, basically to stop your feet from getting hurt by whatever was underneath your feet. Yes, whether that was rocks or animals that bite or spiky plants, whatever. Yes. I mean, you know, the, um, it's a bit sketchy because, frankly, they're all made of stuff that degrades and that decays <laughs> and decays and, and, and vanishes from, from, yeah. from sight. Yeah. And then you get into like the medieval type of shoe. You know, you look at Blackadder and you sort of see the, mm. you know, shoes that are, there, there were some shoes up to like four feet long. Good grief. <laughs> I mean, that's in medieval terms, that's almost a whole person. <laughs> I know. And, but what they did was they curled the, the toe. Up, ah, yes. so, that, so that it was only four feet long when it been fully extended. Right. So I'm I'm sort of picturing a a, a very comical jester like curly toed shoe. Yes, exactly. Then we talk, we can talk about high heels. So high, first high heels were around about 15th century. Really long ago is that? Well, Louis the Fourteenth um, decided that high heels were only for courtiers, uh. and it was actually outlawed. Anybody who wasn't a courtier could be put in prison for wearing high heels. Oh, really? I think he was quite short, so maybe basically <laughs> like you know, uh, 15th, 16th century lifts. And you know, shoes, shoes just sort of bobbled along nicely until sort of the 1800s when people decided what we should do is we should make a shoe for your left foot and make a shoe for your right foot because they're different. So hang on... <laughs> I've just naively assumed that since the dawn of time, 
you had a different shaped shoe for each foot. But that didn't come along until when? So that didn't come along until the 19th century, the 1800s. Wow. That's surprising. Yeah. So obviously the uh, manufacturers realized that, you know, if one shoe wore out, what people were doing is they would just buy one more shoe and or buy another pair of shoes and then wait till another one wore out and then they still right. have a pair left. Whereas if the right one wears out, you have to buy a whole new pair. <laughs> it's a very good marketing ploy. Great. <laughs> also, Great. I think it, it must have felt better to have a a right and a left. I mean, I, I suppose my slippers are sort of uni, uni foot. Yeah. Unifoot, yes, they are. Yeah, they can be a bit unifoot, can't they? I suppose it depends on how how snug and how tight they are. I mean, the you you, you sort of mentioned you know these thousands of year old shoes uh, made of different materials. I I saw a pair of shoes made of of leather that uh, that were yeah about five or six thousand years old, and they did look quite individual in in as much that they were you know, handmade by the person who was going to wear them. So yes. they, they hugged the shape of the foot and therefore they automatically looked left and rightish. Well, there were a load of cobblers. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the point of a cobbler was that um, they, they would cobble together your shoes for you and they would, they would mm. stitch them together from animal skins. And sometimes they inverted them as well. So okay. you could either have the seam on the inside or the seam on the outside. Oh, they were inside outable. Inside outable. So yes. Yeah, so that then we had left and right shoes, and I think we we never looked back really. No, no, I, don't, I can't imagine a a type of shoe being produced now which wouldn't be left and right. There'd be an outcry. I, I did a little bit of research about Doc Martins. I've I've had a few pairs of, of Doc Martins over the years. I don't wear them anymore. Um, that was a thing that happened to me in the nineties and then stopped. Ah. Um, but I've I've got quite an affection for Doc Martins, and um, I knew nothing about them. I had no idea where they were from or their origin story. Who was um, Martin? Was he a doctor? Yes, he was indeed. And in fact, he was Martins. Oh, he was so Martins. It's not that these are the shoes of Doctor Martin, therefore Doctor Martins with an apostrophe. These are the shoes of Doctor Martins. Oh, with an e as well, isn't it? Yeah. So it's M A R T E N S. And this gentleman was called Klaus Martins. He was a doctor in the German army. And um, during the Second World War, he injured his ankle and he found the, the, the German military supply boots uh, were, were uncomfortable for him. They, they weren't doing him any good. So he designed his own pair of, of boots where the ankle came up a bit higher to be more supportive. Um, and he made the sole more cushiony. He, he used uh, bike tires uh, and inflated the soles, so they, they were sort of actually filled with a, a cushiony layer of air. And this helped his ankle. Um, after the war, he tried to market these to very, very limited success. They weren't terribly popular straight away. But in 1947, he, he paired up with a friend of his from Luxembourg called Herbert Funk, ah. which is a wonderful name. Probably pronounced <laughs> Funk, but I, I like Funk. Yeah, um, he's got it. He's got it. He's definitely got it. So we've got soul and Funk <laughs> in the same topic. <laughs> Um, so Martins and Funk um, created these boots, uh, and they initially they were very popular with housewives. They were they were sturdy, they were long lasting, they were quite cheap, um, and, and you know they just did what what you needed them to do. In the first year of production, eighty percent of Doc Martins sold were sold to to women. Oh, yeah, surprising. Um, in nineteen fifty nine, so only well just over a decade later. Um, there was a, a British shoe manufacturer called R. Griggs, 
and um, they purchased the patent rights to produce to to make and produce Dr. Martins in the UK for the UK market. They changed the design slightly. They added the now iconic yellow stitching around the sole, and they came up with the name Airwear, which is the the patent name for the cushioned soles, as yes. I mentioned. And um, and they went into production. And in 1960, they produced the eight eyelet Doc Martin boot, which has just become an absolute icon of, of British. It is the pop it is culture. Britain, isn't it? Um, Absolutely. For, in, in, in you know, thanks to things like you know Clockwork Orange, it's not exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the thing. So th- th- these were produced in in Britain in in 1960. They become an absolute staple of uh, postmen, police officers, factory workers because they're very hard wearing boots. I used to be a postman and, and Doc Martins were an absolute staple in, in Royal Mail. Up until Royal Mail decided that they couldn't afford, you know, luxury items like good shoes and <laughs> thick jackets. Um, but that aside, so they became the absolute staple of the working class and the, the skinheads completely jumped on them and they became you know, the iconic apparel of the skinhead and the punks jumped on them. Um, and so they became associated with sort of subculture and, um, you know, being a little bit out of the mainstream. And Doc Martens these days come in all varieties of styles, colours, elaborate floral designs and, and punky gothic designs. They're, um, they're quite a work of art. Their head office is around the corner from me. In Camden? In Camden. And there is one of the best shops in Camden. I mean, yeah. they, have, they, have a, they have their proper offices uh, over by the canal. Yeah. And they have like this huge shop, which doesn't have any prices on any of the shoes in the window. Oh, doesn't it? No. If you have to ask, you can't afford it. I think that's the case. (laughs) But, um, yeah, so thank you for allowing me a brief uh, excursion from shoes into boots. I think it was worthwhile. (laughs) It's good for your soul. Shoes have also been used as a a rebellious statement. So you were talking about... um, uh, punks and and um, the Doc Martins, hmm. um, and in fact, uh, well before that, shoes were used as as a sort of form of rebellion. Hmm. Um, there's there's sort of a clog that workers wore uh, in factories, yes, and they got very upset that there was a lot of work being done by machines that could actually be done by human beings. Sure. So machines were starting to do man's jobs. Yes. So what's the first thing you think of doing? You throw your shoe into the machine. Of course yeah. you do. Yeah, of course you do. And then when you throw your clog into the machine, or as they called them in France at the time, your sabot into the machine, right? you became a saboteur. No. <laughs> oh, I just want to take a moment and absorb that. Wow, that's very good. <laughs> the education you get on this show, honestly. I know, it's wonderful. I, I mean, there, there have been other ways of, of using shoes in, in a kind of like a rebellious way, sort of, I mean... People throw them up onto wires these days. I've noticed that. What's that about? Well, there was a rumor that it was about um, gang, especially in America, especially in Chicago, like de- uh, delineating gang areas. So, oh, really? You, like a signpost? Exactly. So this is our area. Oh. Uh, but that's not been proved. Um, there was a thing that uh, apparently troops returning from war uh, right. Certainly, after the Second World War and Vi- Vietnam, yeah. would take their um, their boots, uh, mm. their, their army boots, and throw them onto what they called actually boot trees. <laughs> so they would, okay. so they would be like a whole load of army boots on a pylon or something, just to right. just to make the point that I'm not ever going to wear these shoes again. Yeah. Wow. So there's all sorts of 
ways of, of showing your, your displeasure with the shoe. Interesting. Uh, that carries on. So showing your displeasure with a shoe is something that, that, that people still do to this day. Is it? Like taking your flip-flop off and smacking your arch enemy across the face with it? Well, fl- flinging a flip-flop <laughs> is, uh, is something that you could easily do if you're in Arab country because shoes are considered dirty because of they get in touch with the ground. Yes. So showing the sole of your shoe, like if you sit cross-legged and show the sole of your shoe to your host, yes. that's incredibly rude. Oh, I see. And the worst thing you can possibly do is to throw your shoe, not into Uh, the machine, but at a person. Ah, right. And shoes, I mean, the most famous one was George W. Bush um, had a shoe thrown at him. And there's video of him very agilely ducking and weaving to to avoid the shoe. Some some people weren't quite so lucky. Uh, David Beckham, for example, and Lily Allen have both had shoes thrown at them over over time. Whilst visiting visiting various Arab Arab states. Yes. How interesting. Yes. But actually, also, I mean, it's, it's no longer valid, but there used to be a thing where if you took your shoe off mm. as a woman, that was basically a way of saying, I divorce you. Oh, really? So, so the shoes were kind of like, I, I own you because you're wearing my shoes. And you go, in that right. case, here are your shoes back, mate. I'm off. Wow. Well, that, that paints the Cinderella story in a very different light, doesn't it? <laughs> I just want to go and have a little little chat about clogs since you brought clogs up. Um, I've always found clogs um, strange. They, they look uncomfortable and unyielding and heavy. They're essentially a block of wood that's been carved into a shoe shape. There's no give in them. There's no flex. Uh, and they make a heck of a noise when you're walking along in them. Uh, which is why you get clog dancing for that very reason. Yes. Like, like tap dancing. You, you dance around with a big heavy wooden shoe and it makes a noise. Um, and I've always pondered, what is the point? And it had never really occurred to me that they were uh, they were specifically for um, agricultural workers working in damp, soggy climates, because um, they're, they're they're entirely waterproof. You know, there's there's no sti- uh, stitching, there's no seam. They're not made of material that would get damp and soggy. So if you're working out in a, a Dutch field, for example, all day long, I always associate clogs with the Netherlands. Um, then they are the perfect shoe. I suppose they, they are. They get muddy, but you just take them off and wipe them down and off you go again. Uh, so they're totally right for that setting. Um, so clogs were, as you said about the Industrial Revolution, people throwing their clogs in the machinery. That was because clogs were the shoe of the worker at the time. It makes sense. Clogs had, had been around in the, in the Netherlands, in ancient China, in Greece even, for forever. They came into this country around 1400 and um, almost instantly people started using them for dancing. I had no idea that (laughs) clog dancing was such a big thing in this country. Again, Netherlands, sure. Um, But in the UK, Wales and particularly Lancashire has a really, really thriving clog dancing community, which I had no idea about. I think that's fascinating. Um, But yeah, so this, this single block of wood turned into a shoe. Around 1500, they started making a variation of it, which was in two parts. So the heel and the toe were wooden, with a leather bit in between to make them a bit more flexible. And dancing with those shoes is where the dance term heel and toe comes from, because the heel and the toe were the bits that made the noise as you were dancing. And there are professional clog dancing championships wow. around the world. I guess there's YouTube videos of this stuff, is there? Oh, you have no idea how many YouTube videos I've watched on this <laughs> bit of research, Bruce. Um, it's more than one. Um, 
And uh, some people in, in the professional clog dancing world, they started adding little bits of iron to the heel and the toe so that as they were dancing, they would shoot sparks across the stage <gasps> oh, and it would wow. look flamboyant and impressive. And that is what gave rise essentially to tap dancing because a tap yeah, shoe has a bit of metal on the heel and the toe. Yes. Um, but all of that, you know, you think what a massive part of the entertainment world tap dancing is. All of that came along because of agricultural workers in the 1400s wearing wooden shoes that were waterproof. Isn't that great? Well, I'm blowed. So am I, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but there's been all sorts of uses of, uh, of shoes for dance. I mean, you know, ballet shoes, a perfect of example of. Yeah. And actually, ballet shoes are, are made on the inverse method. So you, so you stitch right. them up so that the stitching's on the outside, generally. They, they sort of turn them inside out, don't they, partway through the... Yes, the procedure of making them, yeah. Yes. So, so they and they they put a little piece of something hard in the toe so that you can mm. go on point and things like that. Yeah. yeah. But ballet, ballet shoes have been around for a long time. Have they? How long? So ballet shoes have been around since the 1680s. Huh. I mean, they they generally had heels initially. Right. Okay. Uh, but the first non-heeled ballet shoes came out in about sort of the 1850s. Right, okay. Um, and that made it much easier to dance much more elegantly rather than having that high heel to deal with. Yeah, sure. I remember being at school in the, the 1980s, uh, shows my age, and uh, the, the, the battle between Reebok and Nike or Nike, depending on how you're disposed, um, was absolutely raging. You were, you were very firmly one or the other. Yes. And I remember Nike just having the edge and just being a bit cooler because they were American and during the 80s, everything American was cool. Yeah. But, but um, Reebok have been around actually longer than Nike, haven't much, they? Much, much older. Nike started in about early 70s, 71, something like that. And, and they, they, one of the first things that Nike did was uh, they were looking for the perfect uh, grippy sole. Yeah. And this guy saw um, his, I think it was his wife, cooking waffles and thought, that's an interesting shape. I wonder if we could make shoe soles out of, out from a waffle iron. So he basically got some rubber, <laughs> poured it into the waffle iron, no. made sort of rubber waffles and then cut it into a shoe uh, sole shape. And that was the first you know, really big selling Nike shoe was, was the waffle. That's fantastic. <laughs> I looked at the style of women's shoes, and right. I just got lost with there was just so much, too much, yeah. way too much. Yeah. But looking at like men's formal shoes, okay, yes, which which is a nice niche area. Yes. Um, sort of, you get Oxfords and Derbies, hmm. um, and the, there's a very easy way to tell the difference between an Oxford and a Derby. Uh, an Oxford has the laces going down to a V. So it's like there's there's right. a, a V-shaped lace bit, right. and a Derby has like two different strips of leather that, oh. that, that you kind of bring together with the laces. I see. Okay. okay. Actually, talking of laces, do you know what the hard bit at the end of a lace is called? Oh, um, I used to, but the more information I put in there, the more falls out. <laughs> <laughs> They're actually called aglets. Aglets. Aglets are the little hard bits on the end of laces that help you to, to thread Isn't your that off. charming that yes. such a, a minuscule little piece of equipment has, has its own name? Aglets. So on the on the end of your laces from your oxfords or your derbies, or, uh, and then there are brogues, um, of course, which which have a little bit of stylized uh, leather yeah. on them and bit of dimpling. Uh, and, and and Britain was very yeah you know, very proud of its shoemaking 
um, mm. abilities, and, and we mm. had the whole of Northampton was a was a was a shoe factory. Really, uh, a massive, massive shoe factory, and it, huh. you know, all all the shoes came from Northampton. Right. I mean, all all of these really well known British brands of of, of posh men's shoe, like Churches and mm. Greens and Crockett and James and Lob, all been around mm. since like the the, the mid nineteenth century, sort of eighteen. 1840s to 1860s, 1870s, all making bespoke shoes. And this is an art which is dying now, where you actually have your foot measured and then you have a wooden model of your foot made from the measurements. And then they make the shoe around the wooden model of your... That's called a last. It's called a what? A last. Last. Ah. And then they make the shoe around the last and then that shoe fits your foot like like an absolute slipper. It's lovely. Wow. You're going to save like a glove for a second there, weren't you? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to, I'm just going to throw a couple of world's biggest, smallest, etc. Because I like that sort of thing. Um, Okay, most expensive shoe. Ever. Ever. To date. God, what, at auction or just to buy it it new? Uh, It was made as a one-off. There's only one pair of these in existence. They were made bespokely for a person by a designer. Um, these shoes cost, wait for it, $19.9 million. Sorry, that was me just hitting the desk. <laughs> <laughs> um, these are called uh, these are called the Moonstar Shoes, and they were made by Antonio Vietri only a handful of years ago. They're made of a mixture of solid gold, 30 carat diamond and a bit of meteorite dust from a meteorite discovered in Dubai back in 1576. And and they're a pair of ridiculously glamorous uh, women's high heel shoes. Um, $19.9 million. Some people have too much money. <laughs> uh, I, I, I need to correct myself from a previous episode where we were talking about the predictions made in Back to the Future 2. And I said, I still don't have my power laces. Apparently, someone made power laces. Uh, in 2016, Nike actually made a pair of the shoes that are featured in Back to the Future 2. Oh, wow. Called the Nike Air Mag 2016. And these have a, a very small motor and batteries in the sole, and they automatically tie your laces, as they did in the movie. Um, 100 pairs of those were, were made, uh, and they are going in auction for about $26,000 a pair. <sighs> Goodness. So far less than the moon dust. <laughs> um, shoes. So, uh, didn't they try and make them for sort of people who who were d- disabled, who couldn't actually tie their own shoelaces? Is that right? I believe so. That's a very good idea. Rather than just being a bit of pop culture, that's yes. very good. Um, the biggest ever shoe, or pair, pair of shoes. Or was there a woman living in it? <laughs> An old one who had lots of children. Yes. <laughs> Not this particular pair. Um, the biggest ever pair of shoes were a size 37 double A, and okay. they belonged to Robert Wadlow. Was he a clown? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so Robert Wadlow was the, 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 the tallest man who ever lived. Um, eight foot, 11 inches tall. Um, wow. He lived from 1918 to 1940, very short life. And I've stood next to a statue of him at the Guinness Book of Records attraction in London, which is sadly no longer there. He was an absolute giant of a man. And you're well, you're quite tall as well. So, so I'm I'm, to, I'm about the same as you, six yeah, three. Yeah. Um, and my head came up to the bottom of his rib cage. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he had thirty seven double A 
shoes. Goodness me. And by contrast, the smallest ever pair of shoes um, was made by a scientist uh, in Switzerland in 2005. This pair of shoes measures 12 micrometers. People do this, don't they? Just because they can. To give that some context, a human hair is about 80 micrometers thick. So this pair of shoes is 12 micrometers long. You could always make loads of them, couldn't you, and then give them to a millipede? Yeah, sure. <laughs> that's, that's a good marketing strategy. So like millipede gets up in the morning and like, it takes another three hours before it's able to yes. go outside. <laughs> <laughs> good. Well, that's it. That's it. I'm out. I've got nothing else. <laughs> Me too. This has been an amazing and interesting and fast... Well, you may not have found it interesting, but Simon and I found it really interesting. We think. We think this has been an amazing and interesting and fascinating episode. Um, if you either agree with us or disagree with us, please drop it in the comments and let us know your thoughts. Like, subscribe, all those things. Go and tell your friends about this, this yes. wonderful show. And um, we'll not see you because it's audio. You'll hear us. You'll hear us again next time. So please come back soon. This has been Factorally. I've been Simon Wells. And I haven't. So there you go. <laughs> Bye now. Bye-bye.